0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the Global University, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell.
1: Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we analyze the violence plaguing both Colombia and El Salvador. But first, Sierra Hancock has our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
2: Women across Latin America flex their political muscles this week, fighting back against a society that they say encourages violence to control their gender. Protesters turned out in Chile and Uruguay, and women staged marches in more than 70 cities across Argentina. At least 200,000 turned out in that country to protest. Julia de Tullio, a member of the National Assembly for the Ruling Front for Victory Party, explains why she helped organize the marches.
0: We need to end this paternalistic society and system of machismo. In Argentina, we are suffering. Every day there's a woman murdered, a killing of a child, the death of a young woman or a young teenage girl. We need to stop it. Stop it. That's the message.
2: In Colombia, the country's Congress passed a new law which will designate some crimes against women as hate crimes. Such crimes would carry sentences ranging from 20 to 50 years in prison. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos still needs to sign the legislation before it can become law, but the president supports these stiffer sentences and is expected to approve the law soon. A court in Panama ordered the arrest of the country's former vice president, Felipe Virzi. Prosecutors say Virzi accepted a $10 million kickback for directing work to particular contractors. The contractors were involved in a major flood control and irrigation project that cost tens of millions of dollars. A special prosecutor is digging into allegations of corruption in the administration of President Ricardo Martinelli. And Virzi is only the latest to face charges. Martinelli's term ended last year, and although he has not been charged so far, prosecutors say they are searching for proof the president knew about the corruption and approved it. <laughs> The New York Cosmos not only celebrated their latest victory this week, they managed to make some sports history while doing it in Cuba. The game between the Cosmos and the Cuban national team was the first between football clubs from the United States and Cuba in more than 35 years. The Cosmos are members of the North American Soccer League and they are known for their days when Brazilian legend Pelé led the team. Pelé was also on hand to watch this match. The Cosmos won 4-1. Spanish singer Enrique Iglesias had a run-in with a drone in Tijuana, and the miniature plane left the singer scarred for life. As part of his act, Iglesias catches the drone in mid-flight while the drone is carrying a camera, recording the audience during his concerts. But something went wrong at this Mexican concert, and the drone's propeller sliced the singer's hand. Iglesias demanded the show go on, however, and he sang for another half hour, despite his bloody hand. The singer was rushed to surgery after the show, and he may not regain feeling in at least one of his fingers. But he says he is set to resume his tour in Mexico City early next month after he recovers. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock.
1: Thanks, Sierra. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Vienna, Austria. We had more listeners in Vienna than any other spot on the globe last week, so we say, Dankeschön. And now we turn our attention to Colombia. Last week, the civil war in that country hit a dubious milestone. The conflict is now 51 years old, and it has claimed at least 220,000 lives. The Colombian government of President Juan Manuel Santos has held peace talks for the past two years with the biggest rebel group in the country, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, often simply called the FARC. Although both sides announced the creation of a truth commission this week, the past month has seen a slide backwards in the peace process. A government bombing raid killed a FARC leader who had been involved in the peace negotiations. This followed a series of surprise rebel attacks on government troops. And this week, the FARC retaliated by attacking electrical power stations for the city of Buenaventura. Those attacks plunged the city of 400,000 into darkness. We spoke to Winifred Tate at Colby College about the war. She is the author of the new book, Drugs, Thugs, and Diplomats, U.S. Policymaking in Colombia, a book that traces the Colombian conflict from what was called Plan Colombia, an initiative started by the Clinton administration to support the Colombian government's war efforts. Tate joined us via Skype from Waterville, Maine. Here are excerpts from our extended interview.
3: Well, I have to say, in Colombia, it's never a bad idea to be a pessimist. (laughs) Um, But I also will say that I am, um, having seen, I've been watching Colombia for so many years now, I do think that this is um, the closest that we've come to a peace, the possibility of a real peace accord between the FARC and the central government, and I think both parties understand that um, the stakes are very high. I think that uh, for both, I think that the Santos administration has invested a lot of political capital in this. Um, these negotiations and the FARC leadership are really facing. I think a turning point both in terms of the generational leadership, um, how long they've been in the field, what it means to to be a Marxist guerrilla in this now very post-Cold War moment. Um, and I think that there is a lot, just as there are a lot of things that are sabotaging the process, there are also a lot of pressures that are keeping them at the table and mean that people are really invested in trying to make this work. Having said that, I think um, public support in Colombia for the process is very low. I think there's very little um, hope that the FARC could reintegrate into Colombian society in a productive way, and I think that's actually one of the most dangerous of concern surrounding the process. We have the history of the Patriotic Union, of course, which is a tremendously troubling historical precedent where you had people who were coming out of the frustrated peace talks um, in the mid-1980s forming a political party um, who were just decimated by paramilitary violence. And I think there's a lot of concern about um, a possible demobilization as being a site of future political violence. I'll also say that from my work, my research in Southern Colombia and Putumayo, which is a FARC stronghold where they remain um, very powerful, very much controlling a lot of the rural regions, um, talking to people from those regions, that's not a place that's an American I can travel at the moment, but um, talking to people from those regions, um, they're reporting that there is not a lot of buy-in uh, about the process from the kind of troops in those regions, which isn't surprising given how remote the region is. But I think it's also another concern about how disconnected kind of the people in the field are from the table in Havana. And these are all things that I think really need to be addressed if the process is going to go forward in a productive way.
1: You had talked quite a bit about land rights and um, worth mentioning that during this particular conflict, millions of people have been displaced uh, usually on the very high list with the United Nations for uh, one of the countries with the most displaced people internally in the world, Colombia being that. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering um, that seems to be uh, an issue also as part of the peace process that um, supposedly land rights have been dealt with but I'm not sure that we have all the details that would tell us that 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 people in rural areas will be happy. With with how that will have been parceled out at the end.
3: So one of the things that's very interesting about this process is that it's been piecemeal, and that there have been different historical demobilizations of smaller guerrilla groups, uh, the, of kind of the imperfect efforts to pass these paramilitary troops through demobilization processes. But what that has done has meant that the Colombian government, particularly in the last over the last decade has started a number of post-conflict initiatives before the conflict has ended. And one of those has been the land restitution program, and it's really been a fascinating example of a government trying to um, put forward this conflict resolution strategy, saying land has been a huge issue, being displaced has been a huge issue, we're going to set up these mechanisms for people to be able to return to their land. Um, And this was part of the um, Victims' Reparation Law of 2011. And it's been, um, over the last couple of years, they've been trying to implement this. And they've run into, unsurprisingly, a number of very, very significant problems. And some of them are technical problems. So there hasn't been um, a sufficient land registry. People have historically not had title to land before they were displaced, Their land was undercounted because they didn't want to pay taxes on it. Paramilitaries burned land registries' offices in a number of um, places as part of their strategy. Or people who were threatened actually did legally sell their land under threat, under pain of death. But that those threats are very difficult to prove, whereas the legal titles were um, legally transferred. So all of those are a number of technical problems with them. with these programs. But I think far more troubling are the issues of political will and the fact that in many many regions these land holdings have been consolidated into massive um, monoculture um, agribusiness projects. African palm oil is one of uh, the big ones. And the other issue is they've been—they're uh, now being subject to um, extractive industries, to mining and oil exploration, and all of these um, business interests are, of course, tremendously opposed to returning lands um, to people who are claiming them now and want to return. So there's been a tiny fraction of these land cases settled, and the ones that have been settled to date have all been cases in which there was no opposition. So there was no person or business saying, we have control of this land now, we don't want to give it back, which is the case in the vast majority of the cases that remain, and I think where you're going to see a huge amount, not only of legal opposition, but also of violence, and so a number of land rights activists have been threatened and killed, and I think that this um, issue of land is going to be one of the most difficult to address, because it does really threaten the foundational causes of the conflict, you know, which has been about control of resources and inequality, efforts to address inequality in Colombia.
1: You mentioned this piecemeal demobilization as part of the process to search for peace in in Colombia. We haven't talked about uh, the other guerrilla group, the ELN National Liberation Army that that is doing a separate peace process with with the Colombian government. So even if the FARC is able to find some solution, we still have at least one guerrilla group that that hasn't um, come to terms with the government, maybe even come to terms with how they want to negotiate with the government.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the the issue with the possible ongoing ELN process There's widespread speculation that there'll be significant dissidents within the FARC who refuse to come into a process. Um, But again, I think the larger issue is that, first of all, the vast majority of the violence that Colombians live with is not contained and classified as part of the violence of the war. And the ways in which um, these criminal networks, organized crime, Bakarim, neo-paramilitaries, whatever you want to call them, those structures are, are still in place and they're not going to be addressed significantly by these peace accords. So I think while I am guardedly optimistic about the possibilities of a negotiated settlement with the FARC in the, next, in the coming years, I do think that we have to be very clear that the issues with ongoing violence are much more deeply entrenched and they're not contained within the civil, within this kind of two-party talks that are going on now and that they really require um, a much more complex reckoning with the ways in which these illegal economies, the war economy broadly understood and these neo-paramilitary forces continue to operate with impunity throughout the country.
1: What haven't we covered that you think is important to discuss?
3: I think it's it's sad to be so focused on the violence in Colombia. I think there are a tremendous um, number of initiatives that are really important to highlight of people who are trying every day to address the violence that they live in, whether it's um, trafficking, paramilitaries, or the war and i think those are the, that's the site of hope for thinking about the future of colombia i work have done a lot of um field work and interviews with a women's network in southern colombia the putumayo women's network and they are tremendously creative tremendously brave Um, And they're full of joy even as they kind of think through what it means to be living through these different moments in Colombian violence. And so I really want to highlight those kinds of civilian initiatives as we think about what the future of Colombia will be, because I think it's easy to kind of take this um, bird's-eye view, a pessimistic view, without um, also recognizing and honoring these um, huge number of local initiatives that may get lost as we think about kind of these bigger problems.
1: Thank you so much. Winifred Tate of Colby College, the author of the new book, Drugs, Thugs, and Diplomats, U.S. Policymaking in Columbia, among other books. Join us via Skype from Waterville, Maine on Latin Pulse today. Thank you. Thank you hearing more from that interview later this summer. You can find Tate's book in stores starting next week. In a moment, we'll turn our attention to violence in El Salvador. Stay with us.
2: Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination, and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act.
1: Welcome back to Latin Pulse. In May, El Salvador suffered through its most violent month since its civil war ended in 1992. Authorities logged 635 homicide cases last month, and now... Some wonder if El Salvador's murder statistics will make it the most dangerous country on earth, even surpassing homicide rates in neighboring Honduras. One of the causes of this violence is the collapse of the gang truce between two of the world's most dangerous street gangs, Mara Salvatrucha 13, or MS 13, and Barrio 18, or the 18th Street Gang. The new administration of President Salvador Sanchez Seren has deployed more and more military troops to reinforce police against the gangs. And now, the gangs are actively targeting the families of police and members of the military for reprisals. Last week in Puerto Rico, we met up with Salvadoran journalist Hector Silva. Silva is a fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. We spoke to him at his hotel in San Juan.
4: The truce, it's formally ended, and what we're seeing now is in part, in in a great part, a a result of, of that. Uh, of, it's a consequence of the truce itself, but also on how the truce was ended, uh, and but also uh, it's a, it's a consequence of the current relationship between the gang, the gangs, and the state, and within the gangs, the truce changed the whole dynamic of the gangs. Uh, it reinforced some leadership. It created new leadership. And you know, above all, gave the gang the idea that they had political leverage and that they had the uh, power of negotiation with the state because the state gave them not in this administration but in the previous administration, the state gave gave them that possibility of negotiating with them uh, the the reduction of homicides uh, all along this year, 2015, starting you know by the end of 2014. Uh, an increase in homicides, uh, in in homicide figures, Uh, and we've, you know, that's been getting worse month by month. We started the year with uh, an average of 10 to 12 homicides a day, but uh, aside from that, uh, we did something that we hadn't seen as a trend, and that was uh, gang uh, uh, gang members targeting state agents. Uh, Police, mainly police officers, but also Um, prison officers and some military personnel, families of military personnel. Uh, So by March, if I'm not mistaken, we had around 20 cops dead that were actually targeted by gangs, Um, you know, and uh, we also had uh, a very weak state response. I think uh, you cannot put the blame on this administration about what's happening but the matter, I mean, they are, they already have uh, one year in office, and I think they haven't shown, you know, strong enough leadership uh, in order to put out a strategy. Uh, you know, so they—they've been, you know, making some uncertain steps of what the strategy is. But so uh, the Sanchez administration started with a narrative of trying to put together some solutions that you know, combine uh, strong repression of crime, uh, but also you know more comprehensive police approach. He put out uh, a model of uh, community policing, but that uh, didn't really work. And in the case of El Salvador, it's really hard. You know, that's kind of trying to build the house from the roof. You know, putting uh, community police out there in gang control territories is not going to work, and it showed. Uh, uh, we had weekends of Sundays of 33 homicides at one in one day. Uh, we keep us uh, we're again going to the place in which you know massacres. I mean, the killing of three, four, or more. Uh, in 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 one heat is is out there, so we're we're in the middle of this uh and then in this situation and because of the truth, any answer you 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 give to this, any policy you try to formulate to address this has to go back to talk about the truth ha, has to go back to talk about how to address gang violence, you know. You could argue that, again, you know, it's not a good idea to engage in a dialogue with them, but you already did, you know, and uh, you tried to step back, and when you did, or the previous administration did, uh, you gave them a state, newly found power. Uh, And now they, 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 you know, they're they're aware that they can, in order to get uh, things, from the state they can you know just command the ranks to kill you know so you need to address that in some uh, in some way uh, so the, 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 the state of things you have is yes gangs have increased their, their, their power of kill, they're killing more people and then all the rhetoric on the narrative, the official narrative against this is confused and obscure I read. I just read the director of the police saying that the problem is that the gangs are killing themselves. Uh, so what? I mean, at the end of the day, those, those are dead people, right? Uh, but then the a day before that, you 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 heard the, his deputy saying, uh, "No, no, this is the gangs targeting state agents because we've been efficient." So it's 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 a lot of confusion out there. But above all that. What you also have is a very, um, a very strong possibility of uh, vigilante justice uh, coming mainly from the state and from law enforcement. Uh, you've had, a, you know, a couple of massacres that don't fit the gang, uh, you know, uh, the way gangs kill each other. Gangs don't have enough firepower to kill eight people at once you know you have uh, now and then in El Salvador also we have uh, you know a very well developed use of social media and so you've seen you start seeing a lot of posts in places like Facebook of you know crime scene pictures of gang massacres that the authorities claim that are um, you know that eight gang members died in a, a, a Confrontation with the police, but then when you look at the pictures and and some uh, you know crime scene reports have leaked, it seems more like an execution, you know. So, you know. But of course, the state is is reluctant to address that possibility. Uh, so, aside from the fact of violence and the real uh, figures, you have a confusing and you know. Uh, a confusing, obscure response from the state. again. I don't think the state has a strategy. So let's be clear,
1: we're talking about MS-13, MS-13, Barrio 18, as far as the gangs involved here. And what you touched upon there was the idea of extrajudicial killings. Yeah. And so, is this really then a war between the gangs and the police and the gangs and the military, the gangs saying, we're going to target you because you have killed us without going through the proper forms of justice. You're not talking to us the way that we think a state should. You're matching us bullet for bullet.
4: Something like that. But you need to keep in mind that this is uh, chaos. It's not like gangs are chaos. You know, gangs don't have a vertical leadership. It's more of a uh, society. It's more of a you know, corporation. Uh, so you have number of leaders. Some people have talked about franchises. That, yeah, that these gangs are franchises. Yeah, franchises that you know leaders control, clicks, sales, and you know you, they get together. Yes, because they're part of the MS-13 branch. But you know uh, they don't. Depending on what territory they control, probably one of them controls a territory that's not. They don't have a too tight fight with the the police in others. Maybe they do. So the vision of those two leaders might be different. Then you have to... There are a number of elements. Then you have to di- to make the difference between leaders in jail and the leaders in the outside. You know? And, and that... As
1: you've told us on other programs before. Sometimes the leaders in jail are the more
4: important ones. They're the ones really running multiple franchises. But that might be changing. That might be changing. We don't know. But we're seeing some things that make... Uh, that can make us think that leadership in the street is taking more uh, power now, you know, so it's, it's kind of chaos. And then, the response of the state, I'm not saying that the director general of the police has told his ranks, go and kill gang members. What I, I've seen is actually mid-level local commanders uh, saying, telling me, I mean, as a journalist, listen, this is war. You know, and I have a responsibility with my people with my ranks so if if these ranks come to me saying, "Listen they're killing us," my response is well let's hit back you know and one of them even explained to me how they do it. you know if they seize weapons, if they seize three revolvers, they report two and take the other one not to sell it in the black market but to retaliate you know this revolver is going to be used to kill gang members so whenever the investigation comes out it's going to go back to them because the revolver was their property in the first place so it's kind of a sophisticated uh, thing you know and we have talked about gangs and police then you have the army the armed forces and that's another player and when I talked before about confusing obscure responses from the state you've heard the president and his you know, ministers saying one thing first you heard uh, community policing, then you heard uh, a strengthening of intelligence against gangs, then you heard Manodura, Iron Fist again, then you heard we're going back to elite army battalions to, com- to fight these guys. So, what? what is so everyone's getting mixed answers, including the gangs. Thank
1: you so much, Hector Silva, a journalist and research fellow at American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies the author of *Infiltrados*, Infiltrators, a Chronicle of Corruption in the Salvadoran National Civilian Police. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Hector Silva later this summer. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word.org, and then slash. Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin
0: Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.